welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series uh, six and episode nine and it's entitled True Cleanliness. We're going to be studying from Mark's Gospel, Mark 7 verses 1 to 23. We've been in series six for some time. This is the third tour of Galilee and we've seen some very dramatic events. We've seen the uh, apostles go out in pairs, traveling around Galilee preaching. We've seen the story of the uh, sudden execution of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas. Uh, we've seen the remarkable story of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And then we've studied through uh, John's gospel, uh, the subsequent discussion that took place in the synagogue in Capernaum with, with members of the crowd from the feeding of the 5,000 about Jesus' true identity, about his mission, about discipleship, about his divine nature and about the call to follow him. So lots happened in series six. And now we move to uh, a different event uh, that took place a little bit after all those major events, uh, which is part of another aspect of the story of Jesus. We're now returning to the ongoing debate with the religious authorities. And Mark 7 and parallel passage in Matthew 15 uh, give an account of a discussion between Jesus and some Pharisees about obeying uh, religious rules and religious laws. This is an important dialogue and discussion in a wide-ranging conflict that is going on between Jesus and the religious establishment. Perhaps a few preliminary comments would be helpful. In this passage, which we're going to read in a moment, we see that the protagonists, those who are arguing with Jesus, are Pharisees and teachers of the law. We've come across these on quite a number of occasions already, and we'll see a lot more of them as the story progresses. So let's just think about their role and their function. The primary religious authority in the nation of Israel wasn't the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. It was the ruling council in Jerusalem known as the Sanhedrin. Seventy men gathered together and were appointed to watch over and rule over the Jewish religion. These 70 included some Pharisees, some Sadducees, some priests, and were presided over by the high priest, who was the most senior religious authority in the country. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were, however, very influential. It was a very religious society. We've come across them before, and we've seen their huge influence, particularly the Pharisees, who were uh, a sect of devout Jews who were very focused on uh, exact observance of religious law and uh, external acts of righteousness like prayer, fasting, giving. And these were things that Jesus discussed in, the, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. 
But the context of this religious establishment is the Old Testament framework for Judaism, which is much more foundational, much more fundamental. And this Old Testament foundation had a number of covenants built into it. At the beginning was the covenant that God made with Noah, which was a covenant of God's blessing and protection on the whole human race, irrespective of faith uh, that took place after the great flood in the time of Noah. Then came the covenant with Abraham, which is the beginning of the shaping of the Jewish people. Abraham and Sarah were chosen. Abraham was to be the father of a nation who were to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Then within that Abrahamic covenant came the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with the Jewish people on Mount Sinai when the Jews were under the leadership of Moses, hence the term Mosaic covenant. Subsequent to that came the covenant with King David, which is the foundation for the expectation that a successor of David in the biological succession of David would one day come and be a greater king than him and would be the Messiah of Israel. Then came in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, a promise of a new covenant that would replace the covenant with Moses. So that's essentially the background, put very briefly and very simply. Within that framework, from the Jewish point of view, the covenant with Moses was incredibly important because this covenant, represented particularly by books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, which described the legal framework, this covenant formed the structure of the nation. It formed the religious activities, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, subsequently the temple that followed it. It gave it its moral codes, its social ethics. And this covenant was foundational. So the law of Moses was held in hugely high esteem amongst the people of Israel. Now, the problem with the law of Moses was that in total, there were only just over 600 commands. Might sound a lot to you, but it's not very many commands if you want to regulate all of your life in every detail. And by no means did these 600 plus commands help you to know what to do in every situation. So what had happened over the years, over the centuries before the coming of Christ, is that there had been developed what became known as the tradition of the elders, or sometimes known as the oral law, which were a series of regulations that the religious establishment added into the law of Moses in order to define it more specifically, apply it more extensively, and give a guidance for Jewish people to obey in every circumstance of life. Now, the Pharisees particularly were great champions of this tradition of the elders, and they added a lot of their own uh, thoughts uh, as rules into this mix. So when Jesus is dealing with issues of religious law, which is what we're going to talk about here in this episode, he's dealing with two things. And we have to understand this, the difference between these two in order to understand what he's talking about. He's dealing with the law of Moses, still in operation in his ministry, and he's dealing with these human traditions, the traditions of the elders, the recently added religious laws. And Jesus drew a 
total distinction between the two. He honoured and obeyed the law of Moses, but he rejected the many additional laws that the Pharisees and others had added in. It's worth just giving you this background because it's the only way we can make sense of what is discussed in this particular passage. Let's read it in sections. Mark 7, verses 1 to 5. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So the issue here is over uh, a particularly strong religious tradition. It's over ritual hand washing and ritual cleansing. It was very common practice amongst the Jews to wash your hands in order to avoid spiritual contamination, particularly after being in public places where there was a risk of being spiritually contaminated, particularly by contact with Gentiles, non-Jews, or contact with other Jews who were ritually unclean, such as those who had a skin infection or uh, women who were having their period or, or just after childbirth. There are a number of different situations in which men and women could become ritually unclean as Jews. And so there was an extensive custom of hand washing. It's important to realise how significant this was in order to understand what was going on here, because as you can see from reading the text, uh, Jesus's disciples did not follow this tradition. But an interesting example of the significance comes in an earlier account in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine. We studied this much earlier on. And in that story, you'll remember that Jesus took some stone water jars and asked for them to be filled with water and then miraculously that was turned into wine. That was the essential miracle. But John 2 verse 6 gives an interesting detail. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's about 100 litres, very approximately. 100 litres of water in a stone jar. And in this house, there were six stone jars. That's 600 litres of water. And the purpose of that water was to facilitate ritual hand cleansing and other ritual washing. Can you see this is quite a serious issue and took up a lot of water. 
And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here are depicted as coming down from Jerusalem. We've already seen them come down from Jerusalem in the past. And uh, we see them again. They're following Jesus. They're tracking him. They're challenging him very deliberately. And they're challenging him here over this issue of ritual hand washing. And they knew that Jesus' disciples did not follow this tradition because Jesus was breaking with this tradition. It wasn't in the law of Moses. It wasn't in the divine law in the Old Testament. It had been added in. And Jesus firmly resisted any tradition that had been added in and puts people um, under pressure to feel that their spiritual life is linked with a particular form of ritual. He was against that. And not only did his followers not actually carry out this ritual handwashing, Jesus actually touched unclean people. And the Pharisees had seen him touching unclean people. What do we mean by unclean? We mean ritually unclean, not literally, not in any, uh, any sense that, that we should be concerned about, but in terms of their culture, these people were not to, be, uh, not to be touched and not to be in contact with by human connection. Here are three examples. A prostitute should not be physically touched because she was considered to be a sinner in a full sense. And yet on one occasion in Luke 7, when Jesus was at a dinner party, reclining at a table, his feet on the floor behind him, leaning on an elbow, eating the food, a prostitute came into that event and broke open um, a jar of perfume and washed his feet and actually kissed his feet uh, while he was eating. Now that would have made him unclean in the terms of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but Jesus allowed that to happen. Secondarily, another interesting example is in Matthew 8, a man with leprosy. This was another example of ritual uncleanness where people weren't allowed to touch people with that skin condition called leprosy. But a very interesting thing happened in Matthew 8, Verses two and three, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. That's immensely significant. He touched the ritually unclean person. And then there was the situation in the crowd once where a woman who had a long-standing condition of bleeding, which made her ritually unclean, touched Jesus touched his cloak and he stopped and said, who touched me because the power's gone out of me. He allowed that to happen. He allowed these human contacts to happen. And all of these challenged this religious framework, which wanted to divide people between the clean and the unclean and those who follow the rules and those who don't. And they used this ritual um, hand washing and other uh, ritual cleansings as a means of keeping the separation. Now, this attack by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law follows on from their already existing denunciation. Because we've seen in an earlier episode 
as recorded in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 37, a major confrontation in which they come from Jerusalem and the Pharisees denounce Jesus as a false messiah operating under demonic power and deceiving people. So everybody knew what the score was. They were totally against him and they were trying to trip him up and trying to prove that he was an irreligious leader. But Jesus answers them very firmly and counter challenges them. In the next passage, Mark 7 verses 6 to 15, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said... Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you are no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So Jesus goes on the counterattack. He's not prepared at all to accept the criticism that he's being irreligious and disobedient to God's law by this issue of, of not obeying the tradition of the elders concerning ritual handwashing. He doesn't accept that at all. But he goes on the attack and he describes them as hypocrites using Isaiah 29 verse 13, which describes the nation of Judah um, at the time that it was being attacked by uh, Assyrian armies. These people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And Jesus is saying, like the people in the Old Testament, you're just the same. You're actually hypocrites. You are talking religious language, but your heart is far from me. And he points out that what they have done is they've let go God's commands in order to replace them by human traditions. So they're not just adding on to the law of Moses, which is wrong in itself, as I explained earlier on. But Jesus said here, in some cases, they're actually denying the law of Moses by creating another rule which contradicts the law of Moses. And he goes on to give an example, this rather intriguing story of the Korban gifts. This is the tradition that they allowed. A person was allowed to dedicate his inheritance and his wealth to the temple in Jerusalem so that it would be transferred to the temple during his lifetime bit by bit or maybe um, all at once rather than being used to help his family 
and particularly his parents. So people very often made a declaration that their wealth was going to be handed over to the temple, which basically means putting the hand of the religious authorities who controlled the temple treasury. The priests and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were all part of that setup. Now, when people made that declaration, they often didn't follow through. They didn't actually give all their money over to the treasury. But it meant that as their parents were in need, they then, or other family members, they didn't have to give them financial or material support because they said, well, actually, my money is dedicated for religious purposes, so I can't give it to you. And Jesus is basically saying that tradition is wrong. And not only is it wrong in general, it's wrong specifically because it means that you, you have to disobey one of the Ten Commandments, one of the most foundational commandments of the law of Moses, which is uh, to honour your father and mother, to give respect for them and to give support to them. So he describes this as nullifying the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like this, nullifying what is written in the word of God, in other words, the Ten Commandments and the, particularly the one about your parents, you're nullifying that. You're cancelling out the significance of that because you're saying, well, actually, we created something else, which means you don't have to follow that. Uh, interestingly enough, the new rule that had been created was going to benefit the religious establishment financially to the extent that that money was given, but it was not always given in full. And so Jesus basically said, you know, spiritual uncleanliness isn't going to come from the outside, from lepers, from unclean people. It's going to come from inside. Then he starts talking in conclusion to his disciples more privately. And here I'm going to add in a little section from Matthew's account, which we haven't got uh, in Mark. I'm going to read Matthew 15 verses 12 to 14. Then I'm going to read uh, the concluding section in Mark 7. But let's do Matthew 15 first. Matthew 15 verses 12 to 14. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And then going on, verse 17 in Mark 7, Mark 7, verse 17 to 23. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In this saying, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, and envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. 
here Jesus is roundly condemning the Pharisees. They're like the blind leading the blind. They're going to fall into a pit. God didn't call them. They're self-appointed religious leaders and they're doomed to failure. They're doomed to be rooted up. They're doomed to give people wrong leadership like the blind leading the blind. Well, you can't be clearer than that. Jesus has already been very, very clear uh, about his criticism of the religious establishment and of the Pharisees in particular. And again, he is clear. He now goes to the centre of the issue and he redefines the question, a question that humanity wrestles with all the time, and that is the desire to be spiritually clean. And he says that it's the heart that is the key, the inner attitudes, the inner thoughts, the inner motivations, right in the depth of, an in, of a person. That matters far more than anything external that we put an awful lot of uh, significance in. He said they're, they're very, very secondary compared with what's going on inside a person. The heart is the inner being, the inner life of the person. Jesus is pointing out here that even the food laws that were in the law of Moses are going to become redundant. He's declaring all foods clean. This is a prophetic statement about what will happen when he dies on the cross. And then at that point, the new covenant comes in. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers and the law of Moses becomes redundant. It becomes obsolete. It's no longer needed. And, and then Jesus lists the common sins of the heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, etc. Selfish attitudes, selfish actions, selfish thoughts that are common to all humanity. Now, what significance do we put on this particular discussion? You have to know quite a lot of the background to make any sense of the conversation. That's why I spent a little bit of time explaining uh, some of the context of these regulations. These are ancient history now to us. And uh, so it's difficult for us uh, to always appreciate what's going on. But I hope the explanations enable you to see how uh, important the conversation was at the time. Here are some reflections for you that I draw from this passage. You know, mankind is universally religious. The modern trend in the secular West towards atheism will only go so far. Man's religious instinct is deep and profound. And so we'll always be looking for religious meaning, meaning for our lives. We're looking for the divine. We're looking for God. We're looking for some purpose in life that is spiritual. And my observation is that whenever mankind in any society uh, creates a religious culture, what we do is we create a system of rules and regulations, religious laws, many of them. This is what the Jews had done. There were some divinely sanctioned laws in the law of Moses, but there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other man-made laws that they added in. And the focus of these laws is always on external behavior, always wanting to shape human behavior by religious laws. 
The focus of the gospel and the kingdom message that Jesus brings is fundamentally different. The focus is that an inner transformation takes place by us being born again, forgiven of our sins, and particularly the Holy Spirit coming to live within us. And that is the dynamic of change that is not subject to a whole series of rules and regulations. My other observation is that here we have the problem of the heart. The inner life of human beings is tainted with sin and selfishness. Sometimes it appears only very modest and sometimes it appears to be really severe in its impact on people. But everyone is tainted with this sin and this cannot be washed away by external rules and regulations. You've still got the same human heart within the person who's trying to be religious and trying to be moral. It can't be washed away. Something more radical needs to take place. And that is the radical regeneration that comes through Jesus Christ. This passage also tells me something about judgmentalism. We love to judge other people by external things. We do it all the time. And religious people do it very commonly and very deeply. It's a risky thing to do. Jesus warned against it. Don't judge just by the external. Some of the most unlikely people in Israel in his time became part of his discipleship community. Jesus here is speaking against religious guardians who were not divinely appointed, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And finally, I would say that this is a very interesting prophetic occurrence marking the beginning of a transition between the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is still in place and Jesus still obeys the laws of Moses, but its days are numbered. It was for Israel, for that era, between the time of Moses and the time of Christ, to shape the nation and to prepare the nation to receive Christ. But that Old Testament law of Moses is no longer in force in its original form. Not for us who are living in the New Testament era and are disciples of Christ. We'll explore the significance of how this works out more in other contexts. But the essential dynamic is this. The coming of the Holy Spirit and the atoning death of Jesus opens up a completely new way of relating to God in the new covenant that is not based on religious law. And I'll conclude this section by reading the primary prophecy in the Old Testament that speaks about the coming of the new covenant. It comes in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. It's quoted extensively in the book of Hebrews, by the way, where it's explained to be fulfilled through Christ. But let me just read it in its original context. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Speaking to Jews and speaking about the law of Moses, by the way. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when they took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. That's a reference to the law of Moses. He's not going to make a covenant like that. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Well, this is about writing God's law in the minds and hearts of people. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the New Covenant era. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.